so my name is Mike. Uh, usually when I talk, I pick up verse and try to expound the text. But I felt the Lord telling me to do something different today. He wanted me to tell at least part of my story. So it's a, more of a testimony. I do have a number of biblical texts. Last night our printer failed. And uh, so what I so carefully worked out is empty on your bulletin. You'll have plenty of room to make notes if you want. <laughs> I'll give you the text. So in March of 1992, I, I attended a conference at the Vineyard Church in Anaheim, California on hearing the voice of God. The year before, in June 1991, Jesus had clearly revealed to me that he was inviting us to serve him at a specific place in Southeast Asia using our profession as physical therapists. For about seven months, oh, there you go. No, no, no. For about seven months following that invitation, uh, I, was, I was excited and I felt really confident. Um, but that changed the beginning of 1992. A darkness started to settle over me. <laughs> you go, good job. Okay, it was fear, the fear of failing fear of being inadequate. And I had felt this fear many times before in my life. This fear led me into a state of depression and anxiety and physical pain that at times was so intense I didn't sleep at all. I could not go to work unless my wife helped me. The plan was that in June of that year, in 1992, we were going to leave everything behind go up to our mission headquarters in Seattle and attend a six-week language intensive at the University of Washington, and then travel up and down the West Coast to ask churches and individuals to support us financially and in prayer. In the darkness that I was experiencing, I knew I couldn't do it. I knew I would fail. I knew I was not qualified to do the kind of work I thought the Lord was calling me to do. I went to the conference in March of 1992 because I needed to hear from the Lord. It was a large conference, probably several thousand people. There was teaching and preaching and testimonies in a large group format. And there were small group prayer teams. These were ordinary people, members of the Vineyard Church who had been trained to pray. The process was simple. I joined two women about my age, 37, and one man who was a little bit older in a small meeting room. They asked me basic questions about what was going on in my life. And then one of the women explained what they were going to do. And then she said, Dear Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit and reveal to us whatever it is you want to reveal to us? She spoke in a normal tone of voice. And then we were quiet for several minutes listening. She had explained well, that earlier that sometimes we feel a, a, a word, a, maybe a script, scripture or, or an image in our mind or a sensation in our body, that there were many ways that the Lord speaks to us. So we're quiet, and then the other woman speaks up and says, well, I didn't hear anything, but as I was listening, I saw a picture 
in my mind of a little boy standing on a driveway and a car was driving away. And as, when she said that, I felt as if I had been punched violently in my stomach and I started to sob uncontrollably. And as I sobbed, they handed me tissues and continued to pray calmly, thank you, Lord, more, Holy Spirit, show us what you want to. When I finally was able to talk, I explained that when the lady shared the image, I felt the sadness and confusion that I lived with in the years prior to and after my parents' divorce when I was in the eighth grade. I was the little boy in the picture, and my dad was driving away in the car. I'll come to that part of the story a little later. What happened next was amazing. For the first time in the prayer session, the older man spoke up. He shared with us that he was in the same situation, only he was the dad in the car driving away from his family. He asked to pray for me, and as I did, as he did, I had a picture in my mind of my mom and I sitting with Jesus on a couch. He had his arms around us, but the thing that was most striking was his eyes. They were fire. Later on, I remembered the description of the risen Lord Jesus Christ in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. In verse 1, uh, sorry, chapter 1, verse 14, it reads, The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Driving home from the conference, I reflected on what had happened. I believed at the time, and I still believe, that the Lord was telling me that he was in charge of everything that was happening, that he had arranged the prayer meeting, not just for me, but for the older guy as well. I believe that he was reminding me, as he had told me before, that he was with me even when I didn't feel that. And that he had been with me and my mom during that, I'm going to go briefly back to that earlier part of my story. I was born in November 1955, and I remember the first five years of my life as a great time. I was happy. I knew my parents loved me. I knew they loved my, little bro my two little brothers. I knew they loved each other. Both of my parents were very involved in our lives. My mom was Catholic, and so we went to church every Sunday. I didn't think my dad believed in God, but he went to church nonetheless. Want me to turn this off? Okay. Um, and, you know, I mean, I... I didn't know much about God. I didn't read the Bible. I wouldn't say I consciously had a relationship with him. Um, but still, as we entered the decade of the 1960s, life was good. But slowly, things began to change. Still, uh, sorry, my dad began to travel for his job more and more. Gradually, I began to, and when my dad came home, my parents began to argue. Slowly, over a period of time, the arguments became louder and more angry. I didn't really understand at the time, but later on I realized that my mom was drinking wine. And when she drank, she changed. She said things that were frightening 
and the arguments got louder and more angry. Occasionally, some of the neighbors who were my parents' friends came over, and they would talk to my parents alone. I, don't, I didn't know what was going on, but I started to feel sad and scared. When I was 10 years old, I began getting stomach aches, and I had my first root canal. I found out that I, like many other people on my mom's side of the family, had been born with a disease that made our bones weak. I didn't get it, but I had to start wearing these corrective shoes, and I hated it because they made me feel like a dork. They were like so different from all the other kids' shoes. Later on, I found out that this condition affected far more than our bones. 1968 was an incredibly bad year for me. I was 12 years old. I was aware that our country was in turmoil. Everything was frightening and unstable. And in my home, things were even more unstable. The stomach aches got worse. I had several more root canals. One day I was working in the backyard and I realized that the skin on the right side of my stomach was numb. I started to frequently feel very sad. Later it would be called depression. And I was scared. Later it was called anxiety. And these strange physical symptoms continued. The fighting between my parents continued as well until one Saturday morning during the summer of 1968, my dad woke me and my brothers up and he sat us down. He said, boys, last night your mother and I had a terrible fight. I got so angry that I picked up an ashtray and I almost hit her with it. Your mom had been drinking very heavily. He explained to us that mom had been, the police had come and mom had been taken to the hospital. And he told us that Though mom and he loved us all very much, he was going to have to move out of the house. Eventually, my mom came home. My dad moved into an apartment in Walnut Creek. My brothers and I stayed with our dad on the weekends, and we lived with mom during the weeks, during the week. My parents got divorced. Things got worse. My dad married a woman who had three children of her own, and we were kind of expected on the weekends to act like these people were our family. My brothers and I hated it. My mom began to drink more and more, and we knew we had to take care of her. She would fall down at times. She started going to the Concord Inn at night with her friends, and eventually a number of men that we didn't know began to come in and out of our house. I wanted to be with my dad, but his new family situation was so confusing. And I knew I had to stay and take care of my mom, but I eventually became so angry that I started to hate her. Because we stayed with dad on the weekends, we stopped going to church. I didn't even think about God anymore. By the time I was 16, I was diagnosed with an ulcer. By the time I was 20, I'd had 10 root canals. I regularly felt times of depression and anxiety coming over me, and I continued to have these strange sensations in different parts of my body. My dad took the, me to many doctors, but they didn't know what was wrong. I made it through high school only because of my friends who loved me. My, my friends were the most important thing in my life. 
In fact, as high school ended, I followed different friends into college. I spent a year at St. Mary's College as a roommate of one of my high school friends, and he dropped out and went to Hawaii, so I went to Sac State to be roommates, roommates with another friend. Finally, at the end of that semester, I realized I had no idea what I was doing in college. I heard that my friend from Hawaii had come home, so I came back to Concord, got a job, uh, moved into an apartment, and, and started working. In my early 20s, I started working in a lot of different jobs. I got involved in what was called, kind of loosely, the New Age Movement, which was basically certain Western uh, psychological practices focused on unleashing and enhancing our human potential, and Westernized versions of Buddhism and Hinduism focused on spiritual enlightenment. The anxiety and depression and the strange physical symptoms continued to come and go. And I continued to look for and collect friends, people that I loved and that I believed loved me. Though I had forgotten all about God, he had not forgotten about me. One common theme that ran through all these New Age movements was that good and evil are all part of the same thing and that in some way we're all God. You know, we're all part of the divine being or something like that. Relationships with women that were distorted, focused primarily on sex and different drugs. Not all of my relationships were exploitive, but the few relationships I had with women where I really loved them and they loved me did not take place in the context of marriage and always ended in heartbreak. As I said, God had not forgotten me. One day when I was about 25, I had an epiphany, a realization. I suddenly realized that evil was real, and it was different from good. I could not get rid of this idea. I didn't seek it. It just came to me, and it was so powerful. That realization led me out of the New Age practices. And the Lord sent people into my life like Brian. I worked with Brian at a grocery store in Oakland. Brian was an ordinary guy, just like everybody else, except he was different. He radiated love and goodness. He was a Christian. I wasn't exactly sure what that word meant. Because when we went to church back when I was young, we didn't use that word. One day, Brian came to my house and told me about Jesus. I listened, and finally I asked well, what does Jesus want? He said, Mike, Jesus loves you and he wants to have a relationship with you. When he said that, I had this overwhelming desire to follow Jesus. But instead, I thanked Brian and told him I would think about it. And the thoughts that came into my mind were like this. If I do this, all my friends and family are going to think I'm nuts because I just got out of this other crazy religious stuff. When I was 26, I'm oh, sorry, but Jesus did not stop pursuing me. When I was 26, I went back to college and I was ready. I loved it. And I was good at college. I was good at learning. Through a variety of events and people, I went to California State University at Fresno and I wanted to get into the physical therapy program. You had to be there one semester before you could get in. It was difficult. 600 people a year applied. There were only 32 spaces. 
Let me mention three significant things about that spring semester in 1983, Fresno State. First, I continued to get involved with distorted relationships with women and drugs. Second, I met up with a young lady that I had had a few classes with at Diablo Valley College here named Janice Sabota. We became friends and study partners. That was not a One day, one of my professors called, asked me to meet him in his class, his office after class. When I went into the office, he asked me, what's wrong with you? I said, what are you talking about? He answered, every time I mention God in class, you get this smirk on your face. I was stunned. He turned out to be a friendly guy. We had a good conversation, and he recommended some books for me to read. At the end of the semester, I found out that I had gotten into the PT program, and my friend Janice had gotten into the program as well. Over the summer, I read the books that the professor had recommended, and I started to believe that faith in God was a legitimate way to live. I, I wasn't yet a Christian. But I started to pray. And in the beginning of PT school, September of 1993, I prayed, Lord, or God, <laughs> I've had so many relationships with women and it never works out. Would you show me the right woman for me? Several days later, I was sitting in class at the back with my friend Derek, where I always sat, and suddenly it was literally as if a curtain was pulled back, and I saw Janice, and suddenly I knew that she was the woman for me. I went to her after class, and I said, hey, let's go out. She said, what do you mean? I mean like on a date. She said, no way, that's weird, we're just friends. And she were right. We, we were friends. We had done a couple things over the summer, you know. We, one day we went to a beach in Santa Cruz with another friend that got into the PT program. And this friend, while Janice was out swimming, said, hey, Mike, why don't you date Janice? I said, no way. That's too weird. We're just friends. Anyway, a new phase started in my life. I was not hurt by Janice's rejection. I continued to pursue her. One day, she would be very friendly to me. I'd carry her books as we walked to class. The next day, she would not look at me or talk to me. I was actually dating two other women at the time, and I went to them and said, look, I know this is kind of weird, but I know the woman I'm going to marry, and so i got to stop seeing you. She doesn't like me right now. On November 21st, 1983, Janice threw a surprise birthday party for me. And at the end of the party, we had our first kiss. A month later, we were talking about getting married. I was not a Christian. However, there were a lot of Christians in Fresno, and I started to get to know them. I liked them. And the more I heard about Jesus, and even started to read a little bit of the Bible, I liked him even more. I wanted to know him better. However, the more I talked about Jesus with the friends that I had so carefully collected, the more I realized that they did not see what I see or saw. It all came to a head during Easter vacation of 1984. I won't go into the details, but on Palm Sunday, 1984, I came to faith in Christ alone, reading Mere Christianity, a book by C.S. Lewis. I lost all my friends. It was difficult and sad, but I knew 
that friendship with Jesus was way more important. During the first year of physical therapy school, from September 1983 to sometime, uh, sometime in 1984, the depression and anxiety and physical symptoms seemed to subside. I felt better. But towards the end of our second year of PT school, especially as we started doing our clinical work, the anxiety and the physical symptoms started to get worse, worse than they had ever been. We finished school, we studied for our boards, I went again to see a neurologist, and this time he sent me to have an MRI. The MRI revealed that I had a rare spinal cord disease. And he sent me to see a neurosurgeon in Redwood City who explained the disease to me and explained that I had to have surgery. If I didn't have the surgery, I would become a quadriplegic. The surgery was scheduled. I found this out 10 days before our wedding on November 30th, 1985. Anyway, after our wedding and honeymoon, I started working in a private uh, outpatient clinic in San Leandro. Janice went on to do a little bit more education. I knew immediately that the kind of physical therapy I wanted to do was gonna be difficult because I was having these, I was having numbness in my hands by this time. One of my patients told me about this Christian woman who was what he called a healing evangelist. No idea what that meant. But I was interested. Janice and I went to two of our meetings. The first one, we had to fly to Connecticut. She prayed for me and nothing happened. We came home. At the second meeting in San Francisco, there was about 500 people. We took some of our family members and some people from our church. My father-in-law was actually healed of a heart condition during that meeting. Other people were touched powerfully by the Spirit. There were so many people that the woman had us get in a big circle, and she just went around as her band was playing, and she would pray for different people, touch different people. When she came to me, she stopped, looked at me, and moved on to the next person. And then she stopped again and came back and looked at me again. And she smiled, and she came to the side of me, and with her hand, she made a cross over my upper back, the area where the spinal cord abnormality was located. I had no idea what that meant. She didn't say anything. She just moved on and started praying for other people. I thought, you know, am I going to be healed? Is God healing me? However, as we went home and life went on, I realized that nothing had changed physically. I had the spinal cords, uh, the neurosurgery in 1986, and I came home from the hospital depressed and disappointed. I asked the question that so many of us ask when we suffer. Why, God, if you know about this problem I have, and you have the power to fix it, and you love me, why don't you do it? Many people say that the issue of suffering is the greatest barrier to faith in the God of the Bible. I don't know if that's true, but I do know that the reality of suffering is something that can challenge our faith in Jesus. And I know that all people, if they live long enough, will suffer. 
In the four Gospels, we read about the only perfect person who ever lived. And we see him heal people, cast out demons, exert his will over nature. And we also see incredible suffering. Throughout the letters of Jesus' disciples, while we hear about healing and miracles, we also listen as Paul and Peter and John and the author of Hebrews talk about the reality of suffering. I'll come back to that, but let me finish what I had to say about my story. Following the conference on hearing the voice of God in, at the vineyard in uh, March of 92, we did leave everything behind in June of that year and went up to Seattle for the language intensive. While we were there, we attended a Japanese-American Presbyterian church. They let us stay in, in one of the two houses they had as parsonages. Our friends Perry and Audrey had returned from Laos for their first two years. They stayed in the other parsonage. These people were really good to me. It was a little bit strange because Janice and Perry and Audrey knew these people from their childhood, but I didn't. But they were very kind. And it turned out that many people or some people in their church were interested in praying for healing and listening to the voice of God. They prayed for me. The language intensive was intense. Every Monday through Friday from 8 a.m. to 12 noon, we went to class. And then from the, throughout the afternoon and evening, we would study, preparing for the next day. We had two little boys. We had no extra time, and we were busy. So every day, Janice and I would make sandwiches for ourselves to eat during the break at the language class. Took two pieces of bread, put on some mustard or mayonnaise and put a piece of meat in, put it in a plastic bag, went to school. Every day the same. Now, as the people in the church were praying for me, some of the women started to say that they felt like the Lord was going to heal me. However, one woman said that when she prayed, the Lord had given her 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where in response to the Apostle Paul's pleading to the Lord three times to take away a thorn in his flesh. The Lord responded, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. You know, as we went through that language school, there was times when I just, I, I could, felt like I couldn't make it. But the Lord continued to encourage me and speak to me. One night near the end of the program, I had a dream. In the first part of the dream, I was sitting, uh, I was in a gym and there was like these Asian women, I could see four Asian women sitting on what looked like bleachers and they were cheering for me. And in the second part of the dream, I saw a brown paper lunch bag fall from heaven onto the ground and I went and got it expecting to find food in it but was empty. There was a trash can nearby in the dream, and I threw it away. I told Janie about it that morning. That day when we went to language class, we took out our sandwiches from the plastic bag to eat, and I discovered that I had forgotten to put the meat in that morning. It was just bread. <laughs> so we ate the bread. Went back to class, and then as we were walking to our car after class, I suddenly said to Janice, I know what the dream means. 
It's the bread alone from our sandwich bags. The empty bag that fell from heaven is the word about me being healed. It's not a real word. The fact that I forgot to put the meat between our bread makes me think of what Jesus said when the devil tempted him and he answered, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4, Luke 4.4, and Deuteronomy 8.3. Once again, it was disappointed that I wasn't healed. But it was so encouraging that I knew God was talking to me. Why have I told you this story? It's just part of my story. It's because, like I said, if I know that if you live long enough, you're going to suffer. That has been true for me. It is true to this day. It is true right now. Now, I want to read from several scriptures, to, first of all, to demonstrate they're all going to suffer, and then to consider how we should respond. Last night, I had them all nicely printed out for an insert in your bulletin, which you see is empty. <laughs> so you have plenty of space to make notes if you want. <laughs> anyway, all right, let's go through them. I put in uh, text from Romans 8, James 1, Ephesians, and also from John. In Romans chapter 8, and, and I'm not going to go into these in detail, okay? I'm just going to mention them to point, make my point. In Romans 8, Paul is continuing his discussion of the righteousness that is ours, and we receive it through faith in Jesus Christ, okay? In chapter 8, verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are God's children, we are co-heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And here's the takeaway, if you want to take it away. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. Verse 18 continues, and here's a second takeaway. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul knew about suffering. You want to read about part of it, um, Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. There's other places. When Jesus, the risen Jesus, met Paul, and then he was taken into Damascus, he was blind, he sent a guy named Ananias to go pray for him. And he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, some people think that the big biblical writers are only talking about suffering that comes when we're, like persecution, you know, because we're followers of Jesus or we're witnessing or something like that. I don't think that's right. Notice how, as Paul continues in Roman 8, verse 22, he says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, children of God, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. We are going to get new bodies. We're not going to heaven to be spirits. 
get a body like Jesus has a body. But it's the same and different from this kind of body. That's our third takeaway. It's emphasized by the text in James. James 1, verse 2 says, Consider it pure, pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, in Greek, the word for trials and temptations is the same word. And in this text, this whole text in chapter 1, James is talking about both trials, suffering, and temptations. So my point is that our suffering includes but is not limited to persecution because we're Christian. In fact, most of us haven't experienced yet, anyway, much persecution because we're Christians. So the fourth takeaway is that while God certainly does allow trials, suffering to come into our life, he does not tempt us to sin. James makes that point. In James 1.12, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's exactly what Jesus said in Revelation. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So anyway, I tried to make the case biblically very quickly and from my own experience that the trials and suffering that we experience in Father filtered specifically for each one of us. That's a big discussion, and we can continue it if you want later on. So our fifth takeaway concerns the gospel. How do we deal with this? How do we live with this? How do we have joy in suffering? Through the gospel. What is the gospel, the good news? Well, if you look right there in James, um, sorry. Okay, in James uh, 13, I read this, uh, sorry. Uh, Where'd you go, James 13? Okay. Oh, okay, James 13. (laughs) Through the word of truth that we might be a kind of First fruits of all we create. Think of that, birth. He chose to give us birth. That's being born again. That's what James is talking about. That phrase, word of truth, is used five times in the New Testament every time it refers to the gospel. Great example is Ephesians 1, where Paul says, in uh, Ephesians 1.13, and you also, you Ephesians, you people who are already Christians, you also were included in Christ Jesus when you heard the message of the gospel of your salvation. Same exact word, the word of truth. Our biggest takeaway 
is that from this is that our gospel, our, our salvation is initiated by God, not by us. And the gospel is not something that we hear in the beginning just to come to faith in Christ. It's the way that we're enabled to live through the trials, the suffering, and the temptations. In James 1.21, he says, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word, the gospel that was planted in you. It's through the power of the gospel that we can get through, get rid of this moral filth. I mean, we fail, but he keeps picking us up. He keeps us going. As Tim Keller likes to say, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. Now, my sixth and final takeaway is that through the gospel, Paul had been arguing all through Romans and Galatians and other places in the New Testament that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. We are justified, which means we are included in God's family, in a legal sense, God looks at us as if we have no sin because we are in Christ who is sinless. And it means that as brothers and sisters of Jesus, we are also friends with Jesus. Friends were so important to me in my life. They still are. And my best friend is Jesus. Friends talk to each other. They spend time with each other. They enjoy each other's company. If they don't do that, it's not going to be a very powerful friendship. Jesus says in the Gospel of John in chapter 15, I no longer call you disciples. I call you friends. In chapter 10, he says, I know my sheep, and no one can take them, can snatch them out of my hand. And no, the, no one can take, snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus is our best friend. Jesus is who enables us. Sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't. He does it in all different ways. He talks to us in all different ways. Now, I'm going to pray for you. To close uh, with a, my, one of my favorite prayers from Ephesians 3, 16 and 19. I want you to listen to what this prayer that Paul is writing, again, to people who are Christians. He prays. I've adapted it. Heavenly Father, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power, through your spirit in our inner beings so that Christ might dwell in our hearts by faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and grounded in love, would have power together with all wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and have power to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. God bless you. Amen.